0: i'm matt valley and welcome to another episode of the rock and roll research podcast where we share the super cool backstories and side gigs of the research and insights pros that you trust today's distinguished guest is steve cohen who is the co-founder of information insights who really is the best in the business when it comes to applying analytics to business decision making i first met steve back in 2011 Uh, when he was the recipient of the American Marketing Association's Charles Coolidge Parlin Award, which is given for outstanding lifetime contributions to the field of marketing research. So since then, uh, Steve has also uh, been elected to the New York City Marketing Research Council's Marketing Research Hall of Fame. He has been the recipient of the Buck Weaver Award for lifetime contributions in marketing science, More on Buck Weaver in a minute, and he's also been a recipient of the Ginny Valentine Badge of Courage Award, which he may be eligible for once again after he shares a little bit about his interesting side hobby on today's (laughs) podcast. So Steve will tell you all about that and more. Welcome to the show, Steve.
1: Thank you so much. It's really a delight to be here, and I'm looking forward to having a lot of fun.
0: Good, good. Well, I'm very excited to have you here.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you. So let's let's start out by talking research. So, uh, what what really sparked in you uh, this interest in research and analytics? How how did you get started?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, my my background. I I was an undergraduate in mathematics. Uh, and um, I liked, to, when I was a kid, I used to calculate, you know, baseball averages a lot, you know, when I really got really pretty good at doing math. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, was like, you know what's, he was 10 for 27. What's his batting average, you know? Come on. <laughs> uh, so I really got good at that. And then um, I was a school teacher for a while. I taught math, junior high school and high school mathematics after I got out of college. And then um, I had a friend who uh, came up to Boston. I was living in New York City. I grew up in New York City. I was living in New York City and I had a friend who was up in Boston uh, in a PhD program in uh, sociology, it turns out, but she had gotten a master's degree in what was called communications research. And she said, "Oh, Steve, you're wasting your time being a school teacher. Come on, come up here and go to graduate school. So she introduced me to the chairman of her department, the master's degree, and uh, I, after an hour of conversation, he said, "You're accepted. You want to come?" <laughs> and so I said, "Sure, okay." So, uh, so I, I was there. I was there, and then uh, then I went into the PhD in program in sociology, like she did, and then sort of my career took a turn into market research. I answered a job to become a, a SAS programmer in nineteen was nineteen seventy nine. Uh, uh, making the grand total of twenty thousand dollars a year as a SAS programmer, <laughs> I did know nothing about SAS whatsoever. I just said, you know, let me go interview, and they hired me, and sort of the rest is history. So that's how I got into marketing research as a SAS programmer.
0: Oh, that's that's great, mm-hmm. and, but you obviously you obviously really connected with it and had a passion for it because
1: oh uh, yeah 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 absolutely. As a matter of fact, the, one of the first people I worked with was a fellow named Al Silk, who at the time was the Dean of the Sloan School at MIT. And he was one of the two authors of the original academic paper on the Assessor New Product Forecasting Model. So I worked with him quite a bit. We were developing film forecasting models, he and I, for uh, Polaroid Corporation back when they existed. And so uh, we were doing surveys of people buying packs of film Mm-hmm. And uh developing these film forecasting models, depending upon how old the camera was and what type the type of camera it was, and uh, I learned about things like uh, hyperbolic decay, which essentially was the the functional form of how you look at how people use film pro- and other products over time, which is that they use it a lot in the beginning and then the usage decays as time <laughs> goes on; it decays off like that and depending upon how, the, how much money you spent on the camera and how old the camera was, you were either, the curve was higher or it was lower, but it was the same functional form for all of them. And that was clearly quite the eye opener that you can really apply some really heavy, cool math, which I was familiar with, Right. Because I never took a stat course as an undergrad. I'll make that clear. I was into theoretical mathematics at the time. Right. Uh, but. It was like really some cool math and you could actually solve some business problems. And people wanted to hear what I'd say once I finished uh, analyzing this stuff. So it was a lot of fun. So that was kind of, kind of how I cut my teeth doing uh, film forecasting models for Polaroid. That's yeah, really back cool. in, you know, early 1980s. really is when all well, that was happening.
0: That's really cool. Well, yeah, people <laughs> haven't stopped uh, wanting to hear what you have to
1: say. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, I really want Assuming to... Assuming I
1: have something interesting to say, of course, but go ahead. <laughs>
0: Now I really want to hear what you have to say about this interesting side hobby of yours.
1: So, oh, um, oh, that
0: yes, that. <laughs>
1: Go ahead, you can reveal my my foibles to uh, to your, your your viewership, please.
0: Okay, okay now, now Steve Steve has yeah. has quite an extensive shoe collection, right? And uh, and. Is is really attached to this shoe collection? Is, is I,
1: I, <laughs> I, I I I must admit I must admit I am and the reason it, well the reason it all started was when I you know when I was a kid I was kind of like this you know right now I'm say in excess of 200 pounds and I won't go any further than that in terms of size but when I was a kid I was I was this beanpole tall tall white and skinny you know right and uh, and I remember when I was a kid I used to go buy shoes and it was like Every time I went to buy shoes, first of all, there was nothing to choose from because my feet were so big. And also <laughs> at that time, kid sizes that I wore, you had to pay extra money for those shoes. They would charge right. like an extra buck or two. You know, you buy a $12 pair of Tom McCann shoes and you buy a $13 pair of Tom McCann shoes. <laughs> so I sort of got into saying, well, you know, every time I, as I got older and I got more income, I was able to afford more shoes. I said, look, if I see a pair of shoes that really fits well, and I think are pretty cool, I'm going to buy them. So I'm somewhere between 50 and 60 pairs of shoes at the moment that my wife just like, she sees, she sees the shoe box come in the house from, from Amazon or someplace else. And she goes, and how often are you going to wear those shoes? Because I have ones that you know, barely the, the soles have, have any wear on them whatsoever, <laughs> but they're sitting in the closet and they're, they're doing pretty well there. And I actually have my own closet just for my shoes there's nothing in there it's just a <laughs> shoe closet so uh, it's uh yeah it's pretty it's a it's an obsession and no question about it and i i just bought uh i think it's about a month ago i bought another pair of shoes but so it's um, you know it's just something that that kind of uh, comes naturally to me i mean the other thing that goes with that is since i'm so big i've had to get clothes roughly speaking custom made right and one thing that that uh that this covid thing has done is um, you know you read about all the people who are you know the women who are around in leggings the men who are sitting around in their, in their gym shorts uh well I, I haven't worn a sports jacket or a suit in i you know, it was 18 months 16 months at, the, right. at this point so um my wife is, has been getting uh you know, moth repellent for the closet, <laughs> keep them away from my clothes. <laughs> but uh, it's a it's a wonderful thing. So the shoes are shoes are definitely obsession, and I have bookmarked probably a dozen different sites for buying shoes. So anybody watching this, you want to know where to buy some cool shoes, follow the email. But <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that Matt'll
0: have. He'll connect well, say, you do, with me. Do you do you have do you have a personal favorite that you've got? Uh, some kind of real attachment to well or, or actually functional is it functional? yeah
1: no 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 they're very they're very um so it was funny because a, a friend of mine said well you must have a lot of wingtips and i'm like no into no no i'm not conservative like that i have a pair of uh of uh shoes that were made in spain they're um what do they call them chelsea boots okay and, and the the color is sort of a reddish maroonish kind of thing they're very cool they're very very slim and you know they're very very nice I really like those shoes really like those shoes those are one of my favorites but you know I don't have much occasion to wear them these days you know right now I'm sitting here I'm sitting here in running shorts and a pair of sneakers you can see below but yeah so what a disappointment what a disappointment I'm so looking able to be able to go outside and go see a client and have to wear my uh, my red chelsea
0: boots. <laughs> yeah, so you don't you've been deprived of this of this outlet
1: So I know it it's, it has it, it, been hard. It's been very difficult. It's been a very difficult time, you know, living with these uh these disappointments, but uh there we are. I, I have one yes, I have one sir.
0: last question about the shoes. sure. Oh, oh, just just one please. Go ahead just, just one more and then we'll move on from the shoes.
1: Sure, but, of course. Of course. Uh,
0: have there ever been any occasions where your your interest in hobby and shoes has intersected mm. with your market research career.
1: Oh, geez. Well, actually, the only time I can really remember was there's a there's a conference, um, and I forget the name of the conference that gets held in Spain every year, and um, okay. um, it's usually in the springtime or, or the fall. I can't remember which, but anyway, that okay. one year they they had the conference in Porto, not Spain. Excuse me, in Portugal. It was in the Porto, Porto, Portugal, which is in the northern part of Portugal above Lisbon. And it turns out the place that makes those Chelsea boots, (laughs) their their headquarters and factory (laughs) is is in Porto. Unfortunately, I couldn't go, but I made direct contact with the woman who's the international marketing manager, who is the daughter of the owner of the factory, And I had her send me a pair of shoes through the mail because I <laughs> couldn't go. But yes, that, that's the only time I can really remember the two sort of intersecting with one another. But this is pretty right. silly, Matt. This is silly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, it's it's kind of roundabout.
1: It is, it is, that's, that's what, it's all about rock and roll, right, Matt? This is that's what right. it is, it's
0: all about that's, rock and roll.
1: That's right,
0: okay, so. Sex, sex and drugs and rock and roll, remember the song here? <laughs> and Chelsea Boots. And Chelsea Boots. <laughs> okay, okay, so, yes. so, back to research, I mean.
1: You, from the sublime to the ridiculous, or so from the ridiculous <laughs> to the sublime, I think it probably goes that
0: way. Go ahead, please. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So so you have, have done so much and seen so much in the world of analytics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm curious, from your perspective, what really is the, maybe the current state of analytics and, and mm-hmm. where you see it headed? Cool. Uh, that's, a, that's a
1: great question. And um, one of the things that also interests me is history. So I, I like reading about history. Um, I like when I go to visit someplace, I like to read the history of where I go. and. Um, let me tell you a little story about the history of marketing research, which I'm, I'm going to guess that not a whole lot of your viewers know about. Let's so, hear it. let's hear it. Yes. So, um, it, it, you mentioned the Buck Weaver Award, and this is the time I'm going to touch on Buck. Um, and uh, Buck's actual name was Henry Grady Weaver. And um, so, what happened was, uh, as I mentioned, I had uh, done some work with folks from MIT. And MIT, as I said, is associated with is part of the the Sloan School of Business is at MIT, right. and Sloan is Alfred Sloan, who was the guy who started General Motors, um, you know, was the big guy who talked about differentiation of cars and, and all that sort of stuff. And um, it turns out that one of the people, one of the professors at MIT, had a friend who was who was the head of market research at General Motors, fellow named uh, Vince Barabo, who was the head of market research. Vince had actually been uh, head of uh, market research at Xerox in its heyday, and Vince was also uh, head of the US Census. So he was quite an accomplished researcher. And uh, the way the story goes is that Vince was sort of scrounging around in the library, if you will, at, at General Motors, and then the library was filled with all sorts of old reports and stuff. And he happened upon this gentleman, Henry Grady Buck Weaver. Okay. Uh, And so they did a little bit of investigation, and what they found was that Buck was really quite a man ahead of his time, and what I'm going to show you is, um, I'm going to take control of the screen, if I may, Sure. uh, and show you the fact that, uh, whoops, can you see this? Yep, got it. Cool. You can see that uh, Buck, that's him sitting behind the desk, and he's got some surveys on his desk. Time Magazine, November 1938. And I dare you to name another market researcher who was on the cover of Time magazine. Wow. I suspect I suspect uh, perhaps you know uh, A.C. Nielsen himself may have been on the cover at some point. But this is this is the cover of Time magazine, 1938, and it says uh, General Motors, Henry Grady Weaver, and there's something you can't read very well below it, which it says. Two million opinions make a fact. I love it. <laughs> so, now, what did he used to do? Well, it turns out that what Buck did was he used to send out mail surveys by the millions to people. And uh, he would get them back and he would use them to help, uh, you know, Alfred Sloan make decisions about, you know, what to do about uh, which cars to, to do styling and so on. And the 1930s was a really important time in those in those years because they were very much interested in the styling of cars you know remember right. Henry Ford had the uh, the Model T which was basically you know any color you want as long as it's black and what they were looking to do was to you know come up with this whole differentiation of cars with different things and also you know the 30s was a time of uh, how shall we say you know we we had uh, Left it was kind of like sort of the perhaps the last throes of the, of the depression, although people didn't know right. it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, incomes were, were rising, and so they were very interested in finding out what people had to say. And so, what I'm going to show you, I have some uh, some copies of some of the surveys that he sent out. So, for example, oh, cool. um, for example, what whoops, come on, there you go. You can see on the left in green, this is the, the survey itself. It's a little booklet, fits in a regular envelope. Your car is, you would build it. And <laughs> along the side, it says the proving ground of public opinion. And then below <laughs> it, it says there's only one person qualified to say just what the motorist prefers. And that person is the motorist himself god bless right wow and then and then uh yeah so for example where do you want to mount your spare wheel you want to uh, spare at the rear you want it on the fender you want to enclosed at the rear uh how do you feel the tendency towards streamlining look at that you know fast planes fast boats <laughs> fast cars and, he, and i love this sort of stuff he, 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 you know all the surveys there's always a little ditty a little statement art is not a thing separate and apart Art is only the best way of doing things. And Albert Hubbard said that, whoever the heck Albert Hubbard was. (laughs) Uh, Here's another one from the survey. What's your preference on the rear contours considering appearance only? And this is the one uh, to be not yet this so that what's the front how do you want the front and this right here is the starter aider the starter aider for the starter aider the starter aider yeah you have your carburetor well you've also got a starter aider so they have the starter aider of the car, and this one is my family, which is you know, what are they worth to you and notice the, uh, the, the scale here is balancing off desirability versus cost. Uh, and so for adjustable seats, would you like to pay $10 or $20 or 30 dollars You know, how much is it worth to you? Tell us how much money you would pay extra to get, you know, a starterator or an independent <laughs> suspension. So uh, I think it's really it, what's, when I look at all this, I said to myself, first of all, you know, more things change, the more they remain the same. Right. There's so much, I'm going to stop the share. There's so much, you know, that's, that's so much the same of what he was doing. We we're just doing it sort of. You know faster and perhaps more sophisticated and we're providing analytic models to a lot of this but a lot of the same kinds of things are important we want to know what consumer needs are Uh, and i don't think going into the future is going to change any we still have no way of knowing exactly what people want other than perhaps to ask them or to look at what they do right Uh, and so you know i think our profession of market research and marketing analytics is going to continue to need to do that perhaps at scale and mm-hmm. that's a whole other discussion but you know, certainly finding out what people want, satisfying wants and needs is is what we're all about and what we should be concentrating on in the future.
0: Yeah that's really fascinating to see that that booklet uh, and the types of questions that are asked like you said it's uh, it doesn't feel like it's over 80 years old right <laughs> yes exactly
1: exactly yeah it's it's remarkable yeah
0: and i i would uh encourage uh, folks
1: who want to see these surveys you can i bought this uh off of ebay so you can go to ebay you know and look for opinion survey general motors and i think i spent like 10 bucks to get the i have two or three of them but you yeah. know they're old they're still around some of them may be filled out some of them not filled out but if you want to have one for your collection uh it's it's a cool thing to have that's for sure to show it around
0: cool that's that's fascinating that's fascinating yeah yeah cool. so so steve um uh uh-huh. you know this is a podcast so yes, uh, maybe you listen to other podcasts or maybe you don't i don't know but um thinking about the the research space um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what what other sources have you found useful or or mm. consult currently
1: are you talking about like books and stuff like that, or yeah, that's, or, or that's just yeah. I well, it's I actually wonder, well, yes, uh, thanks. Uh, one of the things that I find, um, that's sort of uh, I find interesting, oh, uh, of course, I find me interesting, but <laughs> <laughs> did you know people's favorite subjects are themselves? <laughs> You're aware of that, that, <laughs> <up>. <laughs> <Let's> <laughs> that one up yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> yes. uh. Uh, I actually like to read the academic literature and I know there are folks who don't like to read the academic literature because you're saying who needs to know how to add an additional angel on the head of that particular pin. But (laughs) for me it's it's sort of a a, a way to sort of jumpstart my thinking about things. Um, And I'll I'll give you an example. When I first started in marketing research. uh, I was working at a company that actually had... So this was after my time doing being a SAS programmer, uh, the next job I had. Uh, they had a, a library, uh, and this was a library of uh, journal articles, uh, journals, excuse me, and I, mm-hmm. I discovered in there the Journal of Marketing Research, which I'd never seen before. I'd never thought of that was such a thing. I discovered Great. it, and I became uh, acquainted with the work of a gentleman named Paul Green. Now, some of you may not know who Paul Green is, but Paul Green... Well, let me let me put it this way. When when academics cite the work of academic of another academic, the other academic gets a point, so to speak. All right. And so and so that's the way they kind of decide, you know, the pecking order. Somebody who gets cited a lot by other people think is more influential. All right? right. So at that time, Paul Green sort of had like 5000 points, which was like way above anybody else. And number two was like at three thousand points, so right. he was just so far ahead of everybody else. So Paul was on the the faculty of the Wharton School, and Paul, you know, you could say that he invented conjoint analysis, uh, mm-hmm. among other things. And so when I was first starting the business, I used to read articles, and especially try to find articles about Paul Green because invariably, given that he had five thousand points, he wrote about a lot of different stuff, right. and he always had an idea. And I always said, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, he's a clever fellow, that's Paul Green. <laughs> and so I would learn, I would look at what he did and i say, yeah, is there any way I know how to do it or are there limitations to what I could do about to, to what he did and so on? So he became my idol for a long time to be able to to look at his, and unfortunately, you know, he he passed away uh, several years ago, but he was a very, very talented guy. And um I encourage anybody if they're looking, sort of, at the history of market research again, if they want to look at anything on how to do anything, any methodological or research, discover Paul Green, Paul E. Green uh, from the Wharton School. Uh, So, definitely reading the academic literature. Now I just read lots of stuff, and every once in a while I find something that's really cool and interesting. And every, you know, and other times I look at it and I go, no, this isn't worth paying more attention to. So, it varies quite a bit. Right? Sure. But,
0: sure good good uh, and I think when we spoke before there was a there was a text that you really oh connected. oh
1: yeah 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 actually um, there were there's really a, if I would make a suggestion of three marketing textbooks or three textbooks on research that I would suggest yeah. people read uh, the first one I'm suggest is an old book one that I used in graduate school, but I looked it up on Amazon and it's still being used. It's still out there. It's called wow. Foundations of Behavioral Research. And the author is Kerlinger, K-E-R-L-A-N-G-E-R. And that covers everything from research to design and how to do scales and how to test and experimental design, non-experimental design. It's a pretty, you know, four or 500 page book. But for me, it was the Bible. And that's how I learned to do research, really. When you get down, it was, it was that particular book. A cool. uh, second one I, I found, find near and dear is a book called Market Segmentation okay. by Michelle, Michelle Vedel. Uh, Michelle is M-I-C-H-E-L, not E-L-L-E. He's a man. Uh, W-E-D-E-L, is, he's Dutch, and he teaches at the University of Maryland. And his co-author is uh, Wagner Kamakura, who's a marketing professor at, uh, I think he's at Rice University down in Texas. Okay. So they, as far as I'm concerned, wrote the definitive book on doing market segmentation. And the final one's a fairly new book, it's called Statistical Rethinking. And mm-hmm. it's a book that teaches statistics, but from a Bayesian perspective.
0: Ah, okay. And, and
1: it turns out, uh, I don't remember the fellow's, you know, uh, who's the author. I think it's Val. I won't even try and remember his name. But it, uh, one of the cool things is those of you who are, le- who are listening, who are learning R or R-Stan, all the examples in the book are in R and R-Stan. So you can really you know, test it out and do stuff. And I've seen a... A lot of the um, reviews of the book I've seen really, uh, really like it. And I, I've, I've had an enjoyable reading of it also, you know, it's all the good stuff. Taking like the bathroom at night helps you go to sleep and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as you read it. <laughs> uh, silly. Nice. Yes. Statistical Rethinking. So I'll,
0: I'll post a link to
1: that. Statistical Rethinking. Yeah, please do. Please do. Um, so that's uh, that's kind of like, you know, what I'm all about here. Uh, it, it's uh, it's fun to fun to do research. As you can see, I got a lot of my textbooks and other books behind me that I like to read. And unfortunately, right. I haven't been in my office for years—not uh, a year. So it feels like years. It's only been months. I'm sorry, it's only been months. Uh, this is just my home office. I'm in. I'm in here today, and um, uh, it's it's an interesting life being a researcher. That's for sure. It's been, it's been a lot of a lot of interesting stuff. But, yes, uh, indeed.
0: Years absolutely yeah. all right so so this is yeah the rock and roll research podcast of course so this
1: is the penultimate right here yes
0: okay. I gotta know i gotta know steve ah. so you're stranded on a desert island you've got three records of your yep. choosing to keep together yep. for the rest of your days There's okay records.
1: what are they well i'm, I'm going to uh, be a bit of an apostate in that not all three of rock and roll records would be That's classified as rock and roll to-
0: totally, fine. totally fine
1: okay so uh the first one will be rock and roll which is abbey road i mean ah
0: yeah classic
1: just it's beyond classic i mean it's everything else pales of comparison as far as i'm concerned i was thinking of doing the white album but i decided to go with abbey road instead because um you know Paul's walking around without his shoes on on the cover of the album. And at that time, um, you know, <laughs> Paul had died. I don't know if you remember the Paul is dead co- controversy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So uh, everybody thought the fact that Paul didn't have his shoes on meant that Paul really was dead. I remember when I was I was in college when this happened, when I was an undergraduate. And, you know, we did, listening to the, the conspiracy theories kind of reminds me of QAnon. <laughs> in terms of the, the crazy conspiracies know, Paul died and who killed him and anyway, but Paul turns out this is quite doing quite well. So that's my first one. The second one is um, uh, um, when I was uh, an undergraduate, again, my sister was going out this fe- with this fellow who was, uh, so I was, Actually, I think he said before I was an undergrad. I think it was, I think it was junior high school or high school or something like that. And my sister was growing up. With this fellow who was sort of a jazz and classical buff, he didn't know anything about you know popular rock and roll music, and um, he introduced me to Beethoven. Okay. And so I am a big lover of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, and the particular one I suggest people might want to pick up on is the one where Leonard Bernstein is having his last concert. At Tanglewood in Western Massachusetts, so it's a live concert. Leonard Bernstein is conducting. They didn't uh, sort of you know take out extraneous noises. It was all he, he was in his last stages of his life. He was you know we're not doing very well, yeah. um, and you can hear the coughs of the people and people sneezing and stuff on the on it. But it's just it's Bernstein and it's and Beethoven is just ridiculously good so that's the second one yeah, and then great. the third one uh the third one is uh, uh another live concert there's a, a an Italian singer by the name of Paolo Conti that's p-a-o-l-o and the last name is c-o-n-t and he's sort of like the uh uh Tom Waite of, yeah. of Italy who's got a really gravelly voice yeah and Paolo Paolo was a uh a lawyer till he was in his 50s and then he decided to become a full-time singer so he's he's in his uh, low 80s I think he's 83 or 84 at this point but he uh, did a live concert at the arena in Verona Italy now if you're not familiar with Verona Italy I, I fortunately have had the good I've had the good fortune to go there Verona as you know was the setting for two of Shakespeare's play one was two men and gentlemen of Verona and the other was Romeo and Juliet And so actually, when you go to Verona, you could supposedly see the balcony where, you know, she was and he was talking to her like that. But Verona has the largest sort of intact Roman amphitheater in the world. It's 25,000 people. And in summertime, summertime they do live opera or other kinds of concerts there. So we went there and saw, my wife and I went there and we saw, uh, I think it was, the opera Tosca, and it was just like you know me and twenty thousand of my closest friends uh, <laughs> watching the opera. What happened? Unfortunately, is starting to rain, and so what happens is, is when it rains, you know, it's outdoors, all the musicians left to go inside because you know you're you know, you're playing a Stradivarius, you don't want to get wet, <laughs> exactly. you know, and, and all the people who are the dancers don't want to slip and fall on their butt, so. So the thing ended prematurely, if you will, but <laughs> it was just an amazing experience. I, I suggest everybody, if they have the opportunity, summertime, Verona, Italy. So those are three: Abbey Road, Beethoven Seventh, and Paolo Conti live
0: at the Opera in Verona. Well, those are those are great choices. Great choices. Surprisingly, um, that's actually the first Beatles mention I want to oh. say so far in 30 plus episodes. No kidding on the wow. podcast. So. Wow!
1: Well, well, I'm glad to be the first, but I sort of, you know, have to have to admonish all the others for not having at least one Beatles record. Please come on.
0: Well, good, good choices, Steve. And thank uh, you, sir. Really great to catch up as always. Uh, thanks so much for your your wisdom. Uh, well earned over the years in, in market research and uh and a little insight into your your shoe
1: my shoes your my shoes. obsessions yeah. <laughs> all,
0: right. all right thank Steve. you so
1: much matt this has been great i really enjoyed it all right be well yeah. and i to all your listeners you'd be well as well
0: mask up and you also be well stephen and and roll. Oh, rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs>